0: So, <clears throat> it said that as the Buddha was uh, approaching his Parinibbana, or death in our human uh, realm, uh, he there were a number of monks and nuns and lay supporters around him gathered around him and he, and he said to them, uh, you know, the Tathagata, the speaking of himself, uh, the Buddha here is I'm going to pass away soon and uh, when I'm gone you're not going to have me to answer any more questions so if, uh, you know if, uh, if, you, if, if you got any questions uh, ask them now <laughs> nobody had any questions and he said now I'm telling you I'm going to leave here soon and now maybe you're shy, maybe you don't want to speak up in front of other people so if if you have a question but you're kind of shy too shy to ask tell the person beside you let them ask for you any questions no questions okay so then he said goodbye (laughs) thereupon all these questions arose like, hey, what did he mean by this? And what what about that rule? And what about this rule? And they've never been answered since that time. So Ulamint and I are going to be leaving tomorrow morning. Uh, We are not going to be dying, we hope. But nevertheless, we're not going to be here to answer your questions. So if you have any easy questions, uh, I'll take them. (laughs) And the really hard ones, I'll give to Ulamint. (laughs) So the question is about the power of a concentrated mind and really what does that look like in in practice, I think you're asking, and then, uh, to give an example of it, and then uh, by the development of the continuity of awareness, which is deepening concentration, the question is, is that kind of resonating or aligning ourselves with our Buddha nature, or the unconditioned or Buddha nature? Concentration can be, as I mentioned, can be developed on a single object, leading to extraordinary tranquility. And uh, in the uh, development of that kind of tranquility and attaining of jhana, which is an absorbed, an exalted state of absorption, uh, the mind the mind becomes very powerful. Now. What does it mean for the mind to become very powerful? Well, the capacity of the mind is to know. And so the capacity of the mind, the concentrated mind, to know becomes just increasingly and proportionally greater. Well, what does the mind know? Well, the mind can know, as the Buddha said, of his mind, he could know anything he turned his mind to, he turned his attention to. Okay, a practical example. There's a monk, or there was a monk in, uh, that lived in Burma. His name was Tongpulu Sayada. And Tongpulu Sayadaw developed uh, jhana. He was a tranquility uh, meditator. And uh, he was doing a, uh, a, a practice of uh, disassembling the body by recognizing the 32 parts of the body repeatedly, for um, 33 years alone in a cave. So, for 33 years alone in a cave he concentrated his mind. Then he came to IMS over in Massachusetts to teach us what he knew, or, or to teach us something. And when he would hold a group interview like this, a, group, a a dialogue discussion. He would come in and sit down. His translator would be sitting here beside him. And you know, 50 people would come into the room. And he'd look around the room and say, are you a doctor? They were. You a doctor? They were. You a doctor? Yes, they were. And they weren't wearing scrubs either. <laughs> How did he know that? power of mind. The power of the mind is unfathomable. It can know anything that it puts its mind to if it is concentrated, if it is collected. That's just an example that I saw. Another um, example is a a concentrated mind has the power and and can, can develop the recollection of past lives. Jessica, I'll speak to your uh, <laughs> your, your uh, doubt and skepticism about this later. But nevertheless, uh, it is said that a can, can, uh, concentrated mind can uh, remember and recall past lives. Most of us don't have that uh, ability to, of recall. But a few years ago, I was teaching here with a young man from uh, Sri Lanka. His name is Damaruwan Now he's about a 35, 38 year old uh, Sri Lankan man with a couple of kids trying to make his way in the world but when he was a young boy two years old he started uh, talking in a foreign language from his parents and not only talking but he was he started chanting and he would just recite these long (coughs) mumble-jumble that his parents didn't recognize So they made recordings of what he was saying, took him around to try to figure out what he was saying, got to a Buddhist monastery, and they said, oh, this boy is chanting Buddhist sutras. Of course, he'd never heard them in this lifetime and didn't have any exposure to it. So they recorded him, and as he grew older, four, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, he just could recite these long, long, long passages which, when they were uh, compared to the, the sutras, it was syllable for syllable correct uh, chanting of discourses that the Buddha gave, as recorded you know, in, in our written texts now. So they said, hey, what's going on here, son? or something like that. (laughs) And he said, oh, I I used to be a monk uh, back in uh, the time of Buddhaghosa, which is about, I guess, 500 years after the Buddha, before the Buddhist sutras had been written down, and he belonged to a group of monks in a particular monastery that were responsible for remembering the sutras. That's how the 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 Buddha's teachings were re, were re, recorded or kept. Certain monks were responsible for remembering certain sutras, and they would that was their life's commitment. Learn this, recite it, pass it on, keep it alive. And he had his um, you know monastery, and uh, he said, Oh yeah, I was in this monastery over here, and. Uh, you know, and here's the, this is where the latrine was, and the kitchen was over there, and the dorm was there, and the library was there, and dun dun dun, dun, dun. And the archeologist dug around and found everything that he said. So he became an, uh, a kind of a national celebrity in, in Sri Lanka. And, you know, uh, got so much attention, he just kind of withdrew and became, he was very shy, young, young man, and, uh, you know, and uh, eventually forgot, or said he forgot, uh, all that stuff and they left him alone he didn't forget anything he just didn't want to be bothered and so we have to ask ourselves well uh, how, how do you do that power of a concentrated mind so but when we're concentrating the mind are we aligned with resonating with are we touching into our buddha nature I'm not sure what Buddha nature is in the Theravada tradition. We don't really have that concept, so uh, we don't have that concept. So, but are we touching or or are we accessing the unconditioned? Definitely not. The unconditioned in Theravada understanding is Nibbana and concentration is not Nibbana, but through concentration you can learn to access Nibbana, or the <coughs> unconditioned. But in in and of itself, it is not, and neither is Jhana. Jhana is not Nibbana, it's not the unconditioned. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to check in with uh, see if I'm on the right track on the same channel here. <laughs> <coughs> uh, doubt occurs with the illusion of self yes. and leads to wrong view right practice of the Noble Eightfold Path, developing awareness, insight, and experience leads, becomes wisdom and leads to right view. Yes. Okay, batting a hundred percent now, you're going to two two. <laughs> okay. go, <laughs> you're gonna go for a third? Yep. Uh, this is a, this is a Are you asking me if that's true? <laughs> <laughs> I seen yet. But, or, or is it all just dust and wind to this One understanding that's really important to get in Dharma practice and <coughs> Dharma teachings and Dharma practice is the teachings on um, Relative and absolute reality. Relative reality is here we are, a group of people sitting in a room having a a discussion about the Dharma in Cloud Mountain, you know, Southern Washington, USA, in the 21st century. Relatively speaking, I'm the teacher, you're the students, you know, or we're the teachers, you're the students, and uh, we understand that we have our roles, relationships. We and we have our own bodies, we have our own minds, feelings, thoughts, etc and we have a, a, a birth, a life, and a death, That's, and we age. That's relatively speaking. Absolutely speaking meaning from an experiential point of view. <laughs> there's no room, there's no teacher, there's no students, there's no retreat, there's no cloud mountain, and there's no aging. When we ask a question from the absolute perspective expecting a relative answer we get confused. If we're asking from a relative perspective expecting an absolute answer we also get confused. So the distinction you want to make in your mind when you hear a question or when you hear teachings is this a relative question relative reality question in teachings or is this an absolute question absolute reality question in teachings because We live in the world, a relative world. The teachings of the Dharma apply very well here and they help us to live a good life and to achieve a relative happiness. However, relatively speaking, we can't be free. You want to be free? You really want a freedom mind? You You have to access the absolute, Experiential reality, and through that you can, you can realize the unconditioned and free the mind. So They're both happening at the same time. One isn't preferable to the other, but they have their limits. In relative reality, uh, this is where our life happens. This is where you get married and have families and kids and take vacations. In absolute reality, there's no vacation. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's keep things in perspective. <laughs> I have a practice question. Practice
1: question. Um,
0: If, let's see if you can deepen this focus on the primary yeah. object.
1: Yeah. Okay. You're with me. Yeah. And then I started feeling like I started spinning.
0: You started to what? Spin. 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 Internal. Yeah.
1: So I spin Disconcerting.
0: Disconcerting. I
1: felt like I might tip over. Mm -hmm. So I I opened my eyes and it continued for some time. Yeah. And then I kind of kept checking in to make sure I was proportioned.
0: Sure, you weren't tipped over something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you do, okay, so the comment was he wanted to deepen his concentration on the primary object, tried that, noticed some vertigo or spinning or something and then got disconcerted and then kind of opened your eyes and kind of checked it out. What did you do to try to deepen your concentration on the primary object? Yeah, I felt like I I had
1: gone deeply on the,
0: the breath. You were deeply on the breath. What's that mean? What's that experience, deeply on the breath? You're breathing, you know. It's like I'm breathing, and I can be aware of breathing, but deeply and on the breath, I don't know what that means. Okay. Okay. So, what what I th- what I think happened, or what I think you did, was you kind of zoomed in on some experience that was associated with the breath. Maybe it's movement, sensations. You kind of zoomed in, and the mind uh, could have been very concentrated, like it wasn't going anywhere else. It was just right there. Sometimes when you get absorbed or you get really focused on minute phenomena, but with a with a concentrated mind where the the mind is, it's looking at this as if through a very powerful microscope, uh, we do lose our bearings. We do lose our groundedness with ordinary reality, and you can feel dizzy. You can feel distorted. You can feel like you're extremely large, extremely small, extremely heavy, extremely you know. You can feel diffuse. You, can, you get a lot of I would call them body distortions you know kinesthetic distortions it's just like you lose touch with uh, because you're focused your the mind is magnified and it's looking at a little pic, little piece of something so you know we lose our ordinary thing all you gotta do is open your eyes and usually yeah. it'll it'll stop the spin it'll you'll come back to ordinary reality in an ordinary perspective and it's fine um, I think it was a little bit of over efforting yeah. a little bit too much of an agenda a little focusing on the object and kind of getting object-centric rather than awareness-centric. Um, it's, it's kind of fun in games with concentrated mind and almost everybody tries something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? just try it out. yeah, yeah, just try it out, just check it out. You know, make yourself sick. <laughs> 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 we do, we, I, we do, I think we all try. We all try, you know, playing with the mind. Once it gets a little powerful, we try all kinds of little little games and things, and we learn.
1: Well, I actually have a second
0: question. Uh, You use your one question. (laughs) (laughs) I want to give uh, other people a chance, but. So the the comment is in paying attention to the breath or uh, that at times the breath becomes very imperceptible or almost imperceptible and you can't feel it. Uh, and the question was, what am I then paying attention to? Uh, two things can happen there. One is you can even though you're not feeling the sensations of the breath, you may still know that you're breathing in and breathing out. That kind of, if you continue in that way, you can develop stillness and concentration but not insight. Okay. If you came to me and said this is what's happening and and you wanted to practice insight and I wanted you to practice insight, I would say Okay. If you can't feel the breath, note sitting, and you know, note your sitting posture. Feel your. Go to the next most tangible object. You know, your your butt on the cushion. Probably more tangible than the breath. Oh, note that. Note note the sitting posture, the touching of your hands together or your knees on the floor. Note the obvious and predominant sensations. Don't try to stay with the subtlety or the imperceptibility of the breath. Okay keep your attention on the most tangible, in this case, the most tangible object, tangible experience. Yeah, Marilyn. Um, when you were talking about the uh, decomposition of the body, was that it? Or Say it again when I was talking about the...
2: When you were talking about decomposition.
0: Oh yeah, de- deconstructing. In the intense, mm-hmm. um, oh, the Tangpula Sayada? The, the monk that was yes, taking right. apart the body? Oh, yeah, okay.
2: My idea was Adipa Maas going through walls and Manindra having her stop that. Yeah. Because um it looks to me like that's what is called one of the Siddhas, one of the supernormal powers which um are not looked upon as producing enlightenment.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what Marilyn is mentioning is that when I mentioned that Tangpula was doing a concentration practice on the 32 parts of the body, um, it wasn't necessarily a decomposition, it was more like it just separating it all out into, you know, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, bones, skin, the internal organs, the fluids and things like that. We just, just kind of take it all apart and just kind of lay it out as kind of something to be observed in you know, time and space and empty of me. So it's a concentration practice, it's not an insight practice. And uh, so the mind can get very just kind of going over that again and again and again and again, forwards, backwards, this, that, and reflecting on it and kind of takes apart the, uh, the, the kind of the aggregatedness of the body it leads to concentration, it doesn't lead to insight. Now what Deepama, Deepama was the Indian woman who had extraordinary powers of concentration and, uh, and insight. She had the ability, now Jessica, don't, don't flip out, okay? okay. <laughs> uh, she had the ability to walk through walls and to listen to conversations or lectures in the university a couple miles away by staying here, because she had powerful mind, and she could do that. She could just, you know, when she would go to her interviews with uh, our teacher Menindra, she wouldn't. She wouldn't open the door. You just kind of walk through. So you got to kind of ask. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa How would you do that? Well, concentrated mind. Okay, uh, it's also not insight. It is. It is, a, a, you know, an extraordinary power and, of mind. The Buddha talked about it. Manindra cautioned her against doing all that, not because it was bad to do, but that it was, uh, well, it was a waste of time, and it was a dissipation of energy which could be better used for developing insight. That's right. (coughs) Yeah. The The what is the difference between concentration and insight? a breath question okay yeah there's a in the beginning of practice if you're using the breath you know we you know the first time you sit down to pay attention to the breath you know and the teacher says okay uh, focus on your breath or notice whether you're breathing in and breathing out at the nostrils well most of us cannot feel anything we can, we can, if we really mm-hmm. hold our attention there, we can know we're breathing in or breathing out, but can't feel anything. It takes some strength of mind to be able to feel the sensations there. And so while you're just holding your mind there, knowing conceptually you're breathing in and breathing out, and, and accurately knowing that, you're developing continuity of attention. That's concentration. But because you're not feeling the sensations yet, you can't really develop insight. You can only develop concentration. So then when you feel sensations, then there's a period of time where you have both the sensations and the, the kind of the conceptual knowledge of the nose and the structure of the nose and where the air is going and all that. And if you keep practicing Vipassana on that and noticing the sensations, uh, eventually the sensations become very subtle and you lose a sense of anatomy. You, you lose sense of where, where this is all taking place. It's just sensations. It's just sensations happening somewhere in space. And they can become very subtle. And when they do, in insight practice, we would say, go to something more tangible. But if you wanted to practice tranquility at that point and you lost the subtlety of the sensations at the nostrils, then there's other instructions that you would use, which I'm not going to give you, to develop more concentration while paying attention to the breath conceptually knowing the breath. Have you practiced that? <laughs> yeah, you, you can tell them how to practice. <laughs> uh, we don't generally talk, we don't teach that kind of concentration practice on the breath. So we would just say, you know, go to something more tangible. Yes, yes, to develop insight you need to feel the sensations. At, at some, you know, generally, you build on that, but you have to get to that point. Cheryl.
2: Okay, this is regarding the instructions from this morning and, and relaxing the mind and of letting go of agendas. Um, so, some people, sometimes myself get confused, <laughs> can get confused in the seeming paradox of, we are doing this practice with a goal in mind. We have a goal. There's, yes. a, you know, we, yes. we have an aim, a goal, wholesome goals. Yes. And, uh, wh- and right intentions. Yes. When um, we're practicing. It's part of the Eightfold Path. So if you could just speak to that, you know, I want to hear what you have to say about the intentions versus agendas.
0: Okay. So Cheryl is saying, you know, when we practice, we have, we have a goal. We have something that we're trying to do, we're trying to achieve, we're trying to accomplish and yet part of the instruction is to not have any agenda in the actual doing of it and it's true we do have a goal but I think I'd like to change your understanding, I'd like to reframe that a little bit instead of having a goal which sounds like something to get How about using the word, we have an aspiration, which is merely a direction we'd like to go, okay? Because we know, if we head in this direction consistently and persistently and long enough, we'll get there. But instead of focusing on the goal, the end result, we're, we're, we're more attentive to the direction we're going in this present moment, aspiration. We're following our aspiration so that when you sit down to practice and you have the aspiration to get enlightened or be mindful, <laughs> take your pick, <laughs> then it's not something to strive for and grasp and hold in your mind like I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to stop until I get there, you know, it's just okay to be mindful in this moment what do I have to do? Relax. Be present. It, it doesn't require holding on to The goal of being mindful, awakening, getting enlightened, getting concentrated or anything, it just has to do with, in this moment, how do I reorient myself to be present? And the way to do that is to let go of any agenda or anything that you're attached to or any goal that you're holding on to. We still have a goal. We still have a direction. We still have, you know, we aspire to freedom or liberation or at least mindfulness. So we can have that, but it's not something that you're holding on to in the moment. Yeah? Yeah. Got it. Well, you know, yeah. It takes practice. Big, that's a pretty big intention. That's a, yeah, but he was ready for it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um
3: uh, that striving as
0: well. So, yeah. yeah. In the course in the course of our practice we will cover the spectrum of st- from striving to not making the right effort. You know, and sometimes we're gonna be striving too hard and we're gonna recognize it and then let that go and then we're gonna to be too casual and too loose and we're gonna recognize that and, you know, um, it's, it's kind of weaving, wandering around, weaving around until we find, you know, kind of the balance in, in, our, in, our, uh, in our efforting, uh, which is not so much efforting as, you know, monitoring your energy. And,
1: The more I open myself to uh, impermanence and death, um, the the more sort of I mean things become sort of more like an illusion, sort of just fragile and fleeting and illusory in in a way, which is which is kind of nice in a way and interesting, but it. But it brings with it a lot of sadness as well, especially at, at the happiest of times. You know, it's, it's uh, rather than thinking, you know, people think when they're upset this too shall pass. But with me, it's like when I'm feeling a wonderful close moment with my kids, I think this too shall pass. And, and, it's, and times that used to be, not used to be, it's often the nicest times that that bring up the greatest feeling of of sadness and loss right in the middle of the moment. And I'm wondering if that means I'm doing something wrong or if event, like when's the happiness come along? Uh.
0: Well, I think that you're uh, having heard the teachings of impermanence and your ability to uh, kind of cognitively reframe your experience or include that in those moments of great happiness with your kids and other social and personal, interpersonal things. Uh, you know, it's that's, that's a, a good thing to do. You don't have to kind of destroy your happiness by thinking, oh yeah, well they're gonna die too, yes. Yeah, like, why why don't don't get into it like You know, that that that's not that's not what it's about. <laughs> but I think there is some wisdom in tempering tempering the exuberance uh, that we might have for very fleeting and impermanent experiences recognize it and there's a certain poignancy when you can you know when you can feel happiness and know that it's impermanent or feel joy and know that it's impermanent or feel that um, you know as good as it is it's not that satisfying because it changes oh I'm going to speak more about it tonight but uh, just knowing that one um, one way of understanding insight practice and um, Jack Engler the the fellow I mentioned before. uh, He says, uh, insight practice is one long grieving process. One long grieving process. Because in insight practice, we have to learn how to grieve effectively. Because we come to know everything passes away. Everything passes away. And you just can't open to that understanding without accommodating it somehow. And the way we accommodate it is we learn how to grieve effectively. And uh, to the extent that we learn how to grieve effectively, and really, when things pass, things are passed. Things are gone. And we can we can make space for their passing and open to the next moment with the fullness of life whatever life is offering us in the next moment and rather than being caught in a kind of a morbid uh, depressed uh, sad uh, place because all things are passing and we're grieving uh, it actually becomes uh, the doorway to joyful full acceptance of everything life offers you it's like I'm not hanging on to the past, I'm here for this right now. And if you're hanging on to the past, what has passed and the experiences of the past or people that have passed or ambitions that weren't satisfied or things that you've had to let go of or self-images that you've let go of, if you're still hanging on to them, you can't really be here for this. And so to the extent that we learn to grieve effectively what has passed, we can, be, we can live more fully in the present. And that's a great joy. That's a, There's a fullness of the mind being present, knowing this, and the mind is totally right here. It's not caught in the past. It's not hung up on things that it's hanging on to. The mind is doing its work of knowing this moment. Fantastic joy. Even if it's an unpleasant experience. So, does that even touch yeah. your... Uh,
1: Yeah, that, it's 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 not, it, I mean, there's the morbid and it's not that old there, it's more of sort of just a tender sort of, it, it's slipping even as it's happening. And, and I guess what I hear you saying is getting better at letting it slip.
0: Letting Jeez. it slip, but, but, you know, what is it telling you? What is it telling you? It's like, this moment is precious. That's what That's what the awareness of death tells you. And in Buddhist practice... You know, a marana sati is the recollection of one's death. Why do we do that? We, we, we consciously recollect our own death in order to, in some ways, arouse this urgency to really, to really be here for it, to be, just be here for whatever, whatever life's got to offer and to make best use of our time in, in our practice and really to understand what's this all about? What's this human life all about? And so that's good. It sounds like you have a a kind of a built-in reflection on and gaining of the wisdom that comes from the reflection on death. And that's great. That's really good. Not easy. You know, because sometimes it's, you know, we feel more tender and sensitive and kind of unsettled about it. But in time, it becomes a, a, a solid knowledge that we have, that this is the way it is, and we can live with it with more equanimity. There's still a little weakness in your equanimity there, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> So the question is, if there's no I-me-mine that's doing all of this, who, who's doing it? <laughs> and for that… <laughs> what is, is it that has the awareness?
3: What is it that has the awareness? Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so this is a not very new question, <laughs> in Buddha time also. This question was raised uh, repeatedly. The answer is, uh, as the stick explained uh, a moment ago, there are uh, two kinds of truth: conventional truth and uh, absolute truth. So we need to understand, you know, the difference between two kinds of truth. We should not be confused one truth with another. So from absolute point of view, there is uh, no I or my or me, but uh, from conventional point of view, there is I and me. So the we need to accept both, not only one. <coughs> Otherwise we cannot even distinguish good or bad, between good or bad. So in Buddha time, one of the uh the founder of the universal region, he was also very well known and a contem- contemporary kind of Buddha. <laughs> <coughs> he said there is uh, no offense to kill anybody. Because there's a uh, only mind and body, uh, so you cut somebody's throat with a swat, no offense. Because uh, that passing is also mind and body. The swat also mind and body. <laughs> physical phenomena. So one physical phenomena get into the another physical phenomena. What offense there? So there's uh, no. Uh, killing no stealing no sexual misconduct because all of us are mind and body nobody is there no i own mind so the he go to very extreme <coughs> points but his teaching was quite popular among the people <laughs> 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 in important times The problem is uh, we actually live in the, in the conventional world. We should behave properly in harmony with the conventional life. If we are stuck to the absolute truth extremely, we cannot even distinguish between our girlfriend and mother. both are the same <laughs> <laughs> so it will be very chaotic that's why the only uh, possible answer is um, we don't be confused between absolute truth and uh, conventional truth we need to accept we need to open to both truth Then only we can live our life in harmony with the Dhamma? <laughs> that's answer? <laughs> so that's a very old question, exactly 2,500 years already. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: on the breath
0: Ron is saying that uh, some years ago at a retreat, he tried he followed a guided meditation that was focusing on the awareness itself and had a disconcerting experience of, of uh, <coughs> spinning, losing, losing touch with kind of ordinary reality and kind of spinning co- uncomfortably. And can I speak to that? <coughs> um, things like that happen. You know, it's a fact, you know? I mean, that's, that's all I can say that sometimes, you know, you, you, you do things with the mind and it's unsettling. You know, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you try too hard or you, you get concentrated in a way that's unfamiliar to yourself and you scare yourself sometimes. And it happens, you know? So uh, if it happens, just back off, you know? Just, just don't do that one. You know, later you can try it again and or maybe you'll have a different, uh, teacher, different experience, you'll have more understanding and, and it'll be uh, different for you. So I wouldn't take it as, uh, oh, this is a bad thing to do, but I also wouldn't take it as, oh, this is uh, something I've got to learn to do. Uh, I wouldn't take it either way. It just, we try something and uh, it, we learn something from it. Eh, don't want to do that. Okay, but another time you try it and you learn it and you learn something else. It's like, oh, now I see what's going on. So I, I, I would I would I would think of it that way. Uh not so much as something you gotta learn to do and, and know how to do, or nor would I think, oh that's a bad thing to do, bad teacher. Mm. <coughs> or whatever. No. <coughs> I'm gonna go there and then there. Yeah. So you've spoken several times on the difference uh,
1: between concentration practice and insight practice Yes.
0: So, the comment is about the distinction between that I seem to make between concentration and insight and whether it's okay to mix and match and do and do we need to be clear what we're doing, or can we just kind of uh, do a little concentration on the way to insight and kind of like that right that's kind of the question. The Buddha taught both concentration practices, tranquillity practices, and he taught insight and uh there's different ways of approaching it. There are some teachers and traditions that teach uh, concentration or tranquility as a way of calming the mind down as a basis for then developing insight. And it's possible to do. There are teachers these days that are also doing that, teaching that. (coughs) But at the time of the Buddha and now, even now, there is a tradition of practicing where you develop mindfulness leading to insight without first perfecting or developing deep states of tranquility and you just practice insight. And uh, also gain, uh, I guess you'd say, the benefits or the degree of concentration that you'd get through tranquility practice, but it's in the service of developing insight knowledge. And so <coughs> then uh, you, you can do that and, and, and gain liberation without uh, having perfected the ability to uh, be absorbed in jhana's tranquility practice. There are benefits and to both ways. Uh, the, some, some say the developing of the tranquility really helps calm the mind down so that you can see and, and clarifies the mind so that you can see the insight practice processes more clearly and some say well yeah but Uh, tranquility practice is really seductive. You get a lot of sukha and a lot of bliss and ecstasy and it's like hey you don't want to give it up for dukkha and there's some uh, truth to that. Well each of us has our own path. Uh, Partly it's probably karmic, partly it's our own preference and partly it's whatever teachers are available. Uh, Myself, I just practiced the insight path to some level of satisfaction and then went to practice tranquility uh, meditations. And Ulamin, uh, did you practice you practice some tranquility first? Sure. Uh, practice tranquility first and then practice insight. And and we both continue to do both. Uh, but I think we're both <coughs> very clear on the difference between what is a tranquility practice and what is an insight practice or what is the insight practice. The 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 situation that I see uh, frequently in students is they don't know the difference. And they can practice, they can be practicing diligently what they believe is insight practice, and it really isn't. It's tranquility practice. And there's a conflating and a confusing of experiences of concentration for experience of insight. And um, unfortunately, it is very difficult to convince them otherwise and to get them to actually practice insight. It is really, really difficult because they think they're practicing insight and they're not. And and it just is really, really hard. So uh, I prefer that people practice uh, insight uh, until they have some satisfaction, some true understanding of of insight practice. And uh, then For those who practice insight successfully, uh, jhana practice is very easy. So that's how I would, that's what I would say about it. Yeah. So um, I'd like to go back to the question that Jessica asked a while back about um, reincarnation. Reincarnation? That was just asked? Oh, Recently, I must have missed it. Like a Okay. Ago, right? Oh, a couple of days right. ago. There, right. yep. Okay, yeah. yeah Reincarnation. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um,
2: because, and I appreciate that she asked a question. Yes. Because um, women talk raised a lot of questions in my mind, too. Yes. And so I heard a question, and then I heard your answer, women. Um, I'm just wondering, so it, it seemed like there's kind of a east meets
0: and east and west there. Yeah. And how, how can we... Right, okay. So a couple days ago, Jessica asked a question in a very very, uh, respectful way, uh, acknowledging that in our Western Christian upbringing, we've all heard about heaven and hell and promised heaven if you're a good boy and girl and promised hell if you're not. And uh, when we hear, teachings of sequential lives or rebirth and we hear teachings of heaven and hell as we have here a little bit. Uh, You know it it raises some confusion and uh, you know do I have to believe this and is it true and it just it it really it's confusing for a lot of Westerners. So how when we and when we hear the very Uh, traditional, uh, orthodox, uh, Buddhist view of things, it sounds like, well, to be honest, so much Catholic dogma. (laughs) I mean, that's what it sounds like uh, because it's so similar. Okay, so how do we, as uh, skeptical uh, Westerners who have gone through an educational system that is uh, problem-solving oriented and uh, analytical and open to the full exploration and discovery of what the truth is, scientific method, even for our own life, Uh, and not so based on faith, uh, either blind faith or beliefs, uh, beliefs that support faith. How do we hear these teachings and uh, use them and not be abused by them? I think that's the question. Is that right Jessica? Yeah. How to use them and not be abused by them because you know let's face it we've seen uh, some of us have experienced and we've seen a lot of abuse by the teachings of heaven and hell and be a good boy and girl and whatever and uh, you know just you know say your confession with the priest or the nun or whoever it is and, and you'll be you'll be okay you'll go to heaven and that just doesn't work for us okay I think it's important in in hearing the teachings, to recognize that these teachings are coming from a very orthodox and fundamental view or position of, in this case, either Christianity or Buddhism. How do we hear them to make sense of them? First of all is, if it scares the bejesus out of you, recognize that, because it does, as, as Ulamin said. you know, When he heard the teachings of hell, man, he, he started to be a good boy, right? You know, it's like, I'm not gonna be a bad boy, I, I don't wanna go to hell, I, I wanna go to heaven, you know? Well, that, that can be a motivation for, as, as uh, Ulamin acknowledged, maybe a kind of a, a, a simple, or a naive, or an uninformed uh, mind. And it's kind of like a a basic level of, you know, behave, because we've all seen our minds. It's not. It doesn't behave naturally. (laughs) Our minds have been trained so that it's like not making trouble for us and our parents and siblings. We've been we've been taught, and if we're not, then it's pretty wild. Okay, so it's a basic level, but now that we're, most of us are more adult. Oriented, aged, (laughs) appropriate behavior. We hear these teachings and we say, Yeah, but I don't, I need something other than fear and shame to motivate me to do what is wholesome and good. And so we first need to acknowledge our own, I don't believe this, I don't want to believe it, you know, and our own resistance to it, our own fear, our own uh, distrust of authority, all those issues. Uh, we have to acknowledge because that's what's going on there. It doesn't make the teachings wrong. You know, if you just say, those are wrong teachings, there's no heaven, there's no hell or whatever, then you don't know that. Why We don't know that. But we need to have uh, our own relationship to it. I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not precluding the possibility, but I'm not confirming it either. Okay, can we live with that? I don't know yet. That's, that's really what this practice is going to ask of you. Can we live with, I don't know, but I'm willing to find out. And then practice and, and see what your own uh, experience tells you. Not because of belief, because we don't, we don't buy. Uh, Westerners just don't, for the most part, don't buy beliefs. We, we think we don't. We buy belief, believe me. <coughs> You know, we're, we're, we're just filled with all kinds of beliefs, uh, right and wrong, uh, but we don't want to accept authorities like that. That's okay, but be careful not to reject the teachings uh, just because you don't, you can't confirm them for yourself. Uh, that being said, for the most part we can practice mindfulness and the development of insight for as far as I can see uh, without a belief in heaven or hell or rebirth. You can practice, you can, anybody can practice awareness, you don't have to have that belief. It might support, for some people having it as a belief or a possibility is a support for practice or maybe a goad or it kind of inspires us to practice or it might we might be kind of more motivated to practice, but you don't have to have that as a belief. And practice is, is not, as you know, primarily a matter of belief. It's a matter of paying attention. <laughs> That's what it is, you pay attention. And, um, you know, whether, you're, uh, whether you think you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jewish, Jewish or Muslim or an agnostic or an atheist, do you breathe? Yes. Can you pay attention? Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> you know, everything else is extra, you know, and it might get in the way. You know, that, that's our Western way. That's, that, that fits our uh, educational system. And, you know, I think we have to acknowledge this is what we're dealing with. Now, Ulamit grew up in Burma where, you know, the, the belief in the teachings of the Buddha are just unquestioned, just unquestioned by you know, devout Buddhists and it supports their their practice to the extent that it does. A lot of people in Burma don't don't practice the kind of meditation or the depth of meditation even that we do. Some do, a lot do, but some don't. Some are just traditional fundamentalist Buddhists like we have fundamentalist Christians and you know where they're coming from. Well, same. So um, but when you when you ask someone like Gullamint, you know, uh, you know, he, you know, he believes the teachings of the Buddha because he's was born with them or raised with them and has practiced to confirm them for himself. But we have to do our own work. We have to do our own work to to see does this fit, does this work, does this support my ongoing interest in in in, in understanding and liberation and path of. Uh, Disentangling a mind from suffering. And I think we all, we all, I mean, we all who have been raised in one tradition and take on the practice of another tradition have to deal with this at some level. You have to deal with it at some level. Now, I've had my word. (laughs) You want to say anything? No. (laughs) <laughs> if I'd asked him first maybe he said yes Should have done. okay <laughs> yeah, uh, and we only have a day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, he said to give him a the hard
3: question. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: everybody likes to talk about themselves, so. Yeah.
3: As he said. But the uh, first thing I, I would like to share my experience with you is, um, I find meditation experience is a very helpful to my life. Although I'm I'm the same person. <laughs> so the meditation experience is still helpful to my life. I'm with uh, nothing. My education is a monastic education. So I cannot be used to my daily life. I have a no job, no home. <laughs> never <laughs> so had no money in his life. <laughs> never had money in my life. No and relationships. <laughs> so, there are actually great difficulties. A very, very hard time for me. But I can keep my mind peaceful. I can have good sleep, <laughs> even better sleep. Uh, then my wife does, does you know. <laughs> 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 she always complains, she always complains. Oh, you usually so fast, <laughs> <laughs> you You don't worry, worry about anything, you know. <laughs> 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 yes, uh, the meditation is very helpful. I know how to deal to my daily life, you know. Although, you know, financially, it's good very, very hard time. For my wife, she's uh, suffered a very hard time. Mm. At that time, Steve visited me once. You know, I, I, I live in you know, the cottage, very small cottage. I rented. He gave me the, uh, a bobbing. A, a it's a very beautiful, and um, she, he may not remember. But uh, my wife, she's very proud of that. He showed everybody, oh this one given by the by the American, you know. This one made, made American <laughs> So she was attached to that bobbin. <laughs> but I, I used that bobbin. And uh, one of my friends also left that bobbin so I gave it to him. So when my wife knew about that, who oh, she really upset and she cried, you know. <laughs> I didn't understand why she's crying about the bullpen, you know, <laughs> Because uh, there's a difference I notice. She uh, rarely practices meditation. So I practice meditation compared to my wife. My attachment is very weak. So the, I, I, I'm not attached to that small thing or big thing. Know, the, relatively, I mean, uh, compared to my wife. <laughs> so, the, I did not even understand why she's, she was so attached to such a small things, you know, the broken. <laughs> so, the, I found the difference. And uh, I got one, you know, the a surgery. You know, that, oh, we are very poor, no money, you know, small kid. There's something wrong with me. My family is a big problem. Of course my heartbeat is a very very fast. So I'm trying to practice uh, meda we all living being happy. Well happy, happy, happy <laughs> It doesn't work. <laughs> 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 I am very good at uh, you know the meditation on 32 part of the body. 32 parts 30, of the body, of the body. Yeah, I, I, I practice for years, so I'm very good, you know that I can apply that meditation to keep my mind calm and peaceful, so I try that meditation, Oh hair, body hair, nail, finger nail, toe oh, my mind is more restless, <laughs> so it doesn't work at all, so finally I'm trying Vipassana meditation. I know my mind, all oh, anxious, anxious, anxious. You know, I, I just took just a few minutes. My mind was a calm down. Amazing, you know. I, I know. Hard to believe. Totally calm down. So the, in the operation, theater, the doctor checked my heartbeat, and blood pressure, everything, okay. So they, they don't need to make me sleep. It's just, you know, a little bit. And so I know everything, operation. My mind is a very calm. i just like this, the vipassana. Very amazing, you know. <laughs> but uh, a few years later, my wife also the operation. You know, that is very minor, you know, appendix uh, operation. So she's uh, very restless. She didn't know what to do. <laughs> when the doctor check uh, his blood pressure and heartbeat, oh, the doctor got shocked, oh, it's so terrible. So the doctor right away make her sleep. <laughs> so the, See the difference? The, I don't need to be made to sleep she need right away to make her sleep, because the heartbeat and the pressure, so was. She said, oh, she feel very, you know, the restless, you know, the agitated. She cannot control. She didn't know what to do. So the, I found the difference between uh, me and my wife. So my meditation practice uh, experience is uh, very helpful. Although, financially, you know, oh, hard to believe. <laughs> Sometimes nothing to eat, <laughs> honestly. But uh, I can keep my mind peaceful. So that's why my wife complain, oh, you never worry about it. <laughs> so the, that's uh, my experience. When I disrobe, I have uh, nothing. I have a really hard time. But. Uh, I have no uh, secular worldly education, but uh, I, I can survive. You know. I can live a peaceful life thanks to my meditation. And uh, my wife is uh, at least her uh, education is higher than me because she's you know the high school degree. I have just basic, <laughs> only monastic, you know. But uh, I can live better life than my wife did, <laughs> thanks to people's um, meditation. So that's my own experience I want to share with you.